All right, well, good morning. Happy New Year. Let's jump into a word of prayer, and then we'll get going on uh, this morning's talk. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for today, for bringing us together, for giving us another year that we can worship you, that we can glorify you, that we can draw together to seek you. Father, I pray that this morning, as we're here studying your word together, that we would sense your spirit at work in this place, and God, that we would not resist you, but Lord, you would give us willing hearts to receive the words that we hear. God, that you would make us uh, more like you, uh, just as a result of being here worshiping together, that you would unify us as a church, not for the sake of unity, but God, that you would be glorified through all of us. Uh, participating together in obeying you, pushing one another on toward holiness. We pray that you would uh, bless the words that I speak this morning, that uh, they'd be understandable, and um, just uh, let this all be done for your glory. In your name, amen. All right, well, you are more of my people, I think. Anybody stay up and watch the ball drop? I don't think we had any in the first service, so, uh, which is not surprising, but... Um, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to try to keep you awake. I'm well caffeinated, so I'm not in any danger. Uh, I hope you are as well. Uh, And I'll try not to go too fast here because, like I said, a lot of coffee Uh, because it's New Year's morning. So let's take a quick poll here, okay? Uh, How many uh, of you here have a New Year's resolution this year? Just show of hands. All right, not, not as many. How many have at some point in their life, maybe you didn't today or this year, but at some point in your life, you've made a New Year's resolution? Just show your hands. Okay, pretty good. Now, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, how many of you have not and will not ever make a New Year's resolution? Because that was ridiculous, right? Okay, all right. Now we know where everybody stands. Uh, well, regardless of where you are on your resolutions or if you haven't made them or you have or you never make them, uh, it's in the news. I mean, everybody's talking about it. There's not really a lot else happening other than political stuff, so there's not much to report on other than, hey, people are setting goals right now. So you hear about it a lot now. And uh, Time Magazine actually last year posted a study, or a, uh, I guess it was a study that kind of showed here are the top resolutions made for 2011. And so this was a year ago they made this. And so I'm going to give you the top five. So if you didn't make any and you were intending to, get out your pencils because these are good ones. Uh, number one, this one's not any surprise, lose weight and get in shape is the number one resolution. The number two resolution, quit smoking. Number three was to learn something new. So that would be, you know, if you want to learn a language or learn how to cook or something like that. Uh, Number four, get out of debt and save money. And then number five is to spend more time with family. So I think those are pretty familiar to everybody. You know, I think everybody's probably written at least one of those down, right? I mean, I've gotten uh, a couple of those on my list before. Anybody else? Yes? Okay. Well, uh, here's the funny thing. Out of this magazine article from Time Magazine, uh, these actually, these uh, resolutions were the top five of of the 10 or 11 so that they listed, but these were actually the top resolutions that people broke in 2011. So so I say that to encourage you that your odds are good that you'll fail. So welcome to church. Woo! it, you know, but if you're like me, honestly, I, I don't think any of us are really surprised to hear that people didn't hold up to their resolutions because we've all been there, right? I mean, I've, I've gone to the gym on January 1st, and I signed up for the membership for the gym, and then by February 1st, I can't remember what the name of the gym is because I never went back, you know? Uh, so, 
we end up in this kind of cycle where we set these really good goals out and then we kind of uh, really, I mean, we blow it in one way or another. You know, we, we eat a lot of food and we don't get into shape or, or we don't get our finances in order and we blow our budget. And then we just kind of get into this mode where we're like, ah, you know, why bother? We'll just try it again next time. And, and we keep doing that and, and we, we get into the, almost the cynical mode where we're not even really trying anymore. We're not trying to win. We're just trying to not lose, right? And we just kind of think, well, why even fight anymore? And, uh, and so what happens, though, is that we get into a lot of danger, and I think we are in a lot of danger right now because we're doing this same game of, well, here's, you know, uh, here's my resolution. Oh, I didn't make it. Oh, well, whatever. Just forget it. And, and we do the same thing with our relationship with God and with Christ and we're in a serious danger because this is more than just personal disappointment that we're facing. And uh, so what I want to talk about this morning uh, is basically that very thing. It's why should we keep fighting? I mean, maybe you had a time in your life where you were really excited and you were really fired up about your relationship with God. You were really excited about the church. And then over time, you've kind of cooled to it a little bit. And now you're just kind of frustrated with the whole church experience. You know, maybe you were burned in the church in the past or something happened, one thing or another, and now you're just kind of like, you know, why should I even fight for spiritual growth? Because it's just not like it used to be, you know? And so that's what I want to take you to is a passage where Paul talks about this exact thing of why we need to keep fighting. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to talk about fighting today. We're going to talk about the four reasons that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 9 of why we should fight for spiritual growth. And these four things all kind of lead up to a climax at the end here of the ultimate reason of what we are fighting for. So, ready? 1 Corinthians 9. You can grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you if you don't have yours with you. Uh, Or uh, open your own Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to be here uh, all morning, so um, keep your finger in this. We're going to jump around to a couple of different verses, but keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 9. All right, and starting with verse 24, going through verse 27, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So this kind of gives us uh, an overview, really, you know, Paul is laying out four basic points here. He, he's starting with this kind of big, general, 40,000-foot view of why we need to do this. And then in verses 25 and 26, he gets more practical and kind of ground level. And then by the time we get all of that going, we've got some momentum. So we go into verse 27. And so that's kind of the, the way we're going to work through this today. And so in verse 24, we get the first reason of why we should fight. And that is we fight for a prize. Now, those of you that are, are Peoria natives are probably familiar with steamboat days that they have downtown. Uh, every June, they have the steamboat race, or the steamboat classic. It's this four-mile race you know, that they have, and it's, I mean, locally, you know, it's kind of a big deal. We get like 4,000-something people that run in this thing each year, and uh, I've graced them with my presence no less than three times. And uh, funny thing, I haven't won yet uh, on the race. You may be shocked to hear that. Um, 
but uh, it's true. I didn't come in the top. And, um, you know, something that I realized is that most of the people uh, that run in this race, the vast majority, I mean, except for a very small fraction, almost all of the people run this race uh, with no intention of winning whatsoever, right? I mean, they go four miles uh, at what's called the world's fastest four mile, and, uh, and nobody has any intention of winning. And I mean, they're running because they want the t-shirt, or they're running because their friends are running, or they're running because there's a beer truck at the end of the race. Uh, I mean, they have all of these reasons that they're running, but none of them is because they want to win. They just, you know, it's just fun, and they're just in it, and so they just kind of plod along. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of the way they are. But if you've been there, uh, there is one group of runners that, uh, that definitely are set on winning, and, uh, and they're pretty identifiable because they're these string bean guys uh, from Kenya, right? The Kenyans. I mean, they are skinny as a rail, and they run four minutes a mile for the entire course. I mean, so literally, it's physically impossible for me to, to win this race. I can't run four-minute miles for four miles. I can't run four-minute miles for half a mile, let alone for four miles. So I don't get my hopes up. I'm not heartbroken that I didn't win those three times. Um, and uh, so, but, but, you know, you've got these Kenyans, and these guys are intense, and they are running to win. You know, obviously, in a race, you only get one winner out of the entire race. And so what Paul is telling us in here is basically you need to run like one of these Kenyan runners, one of these elite runners that are at the front of the pack because they are seeking after a prize. It's not just a completion medal. Uh, I mean, they are running after the main prize and the title for it, and in some cases in, in this race specifically, even world records. And this is the intensity that we've got to train after the gospel with. Excuse me. So what Paul is saying, though, is that we have an advantage because in any other race that we run in life, there's only one winner. There's only one person that's going to be standing with the gold medal. But that same idea, that same intensity of finishing because you have this thing uh, that, you're att- that you're reaching for is true for all believers in the gospel because of the work that Christ has already done for us. So he's saying the gate is wide open for everybody to receive the gold medal for finishing first place in this race, but we have to run with the intensity of someone who's running for the prize. You know, we don't just get on there and just kind of do this treadmill thing where we're just kind of plodding along because I think uh, oftentimes we just, uh, we just kind of get into this mediocre mode, right? And, and Christ talked about this in Revelation uh, chapter 3. I'll flip over there real quick. Uh, Revelation 3, verses 15 to 17. Some of you know where I'm going with this already. Uh, but, you know, this, this is Christ speaking in the book of Revelation to the church at Laodicea. And, and really, they're a church a lot like us. Us meaning kind of American modern society. You know, they, they're not uh, needy. You know, they're not a third world country. You know, they've got enough um, they've got the church thing pretty well down. They know the routine. They can come in. They can see them so- sing the songs. They know when to stand and sit and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and they feel pretty good about themselves because they put on a pretty good front. And what Christ says in verse 15 is, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I wish it was as simple as just saying, hey, everybody's a winner. But the truth is, a lot of us get into this mediocre cycle, and we end up just kind of just saying, you know what, we just don't need to fight anymore, and we'll just kind of plod along. And that's exactly where the church of Laodicea is. And what Christ is telling us in there, and what Paul is telling us in this verse, is it's not just some simple game that we can just play around with and just unintentionally, haphazardly just go through life. He's calling us to pursue holiness and to fight for it. And what this brings us to, (coughs) excuse me, What this brings us to is the second reason we fight. Because like any New Year's resolution, as we've already discussed, I mean, it's one thing to set a goal and to say, here's what I'm going to do. And then there's another, it's another thing to kind of get into motion and have a plan where you're going to actually accomplish the thing. And Paul knew this. This isn't a modern human condition. This is something that's existed in humanity, this, uh, this desire for self-improvement and, and uh, <laughs> failure at that. And so uh, Paul, before they can object to what he's telling them in verse 24, he brings out verse 25 there in Corinthians 9 again, and he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Say, all things. All things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So let me give you a little bit of context here about what Paul is talking about, because this, uh, you know, the book of Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth, and in this particular section, which is about chapter 7 through about 10 or 11, he's basically giving them a broad overview of what it looks like to lead a godly life, and so he's talking about some specific things, and this actual portion that we're studying today, it's a lot more popular because it's, it's memorable, uh, but it's actually a transitional statement. So he's changing topics from talking about uh, a couple of different things to talking about something else. And so he's alluding to things with the language that he's using on here. <clears throat> so uh, you know, basically what he brings up in chapter 10, we don't have time to go through all of that right now because it's too long, but, uh, but he tells them a little bit about the Israelites as they came out of Egypt and how they came out of Egypt and they had seen massive miracles of God. I mean, the 10 plagues of Egypt... This is legendary even if you don't know anything about Christianity. And these people witnessed it and then with their own feet walked on the dry seabed of the Red Sea. And within days of that, they had cast a golden idol out of the fire with Aaron and were worshiping before it and committing all sorts of debauchery in the desert. Days after leaving Egypt, they're in this situation. And so what Paul is telling the people at Corinth is he's saying, look, you guys are not that strong. You are not as strong as you think you are, so you need to guard yourself against this. And so what verse 25 is telling us is the second thing is we fight for purity. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I don't think that I really need to tell you this uh, as an informative view because everybody knows this, but we, lived, we live in a, a sex-obsessed culture today. Our culture, I mean, you look on TV and almost every night of the week, sitcoms are displaying or depicting uh, sexual immorality. We have magazines that are telling you how to get more of it. We have books that are being written about it. There's seminars you can attend about it. I mean, we have therapists that talk about it. It's just, it's just totally permeated every aspect of our culture from everything from the way that we look and why we want to look good to I mean, the reasons why we get into a relationship. I mean, just, it's just 
covers almost everything. And I think the temptation for us is to think, well, you know, it's nice that Paul wrote this to the Corinthians and he told them they need to be careful, but it would have been nice if he had lived in our time and he had all of the pornography industry and he had all of this filth that was coming into our culture because, you know, I mean, I'm sure they had it rough, but it, they didn't have it like we've got it now. And, and our, 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 um, our temptation then is to, to kind of rationalize away all of the, the stuff that we struggle with and we think, well, you know, it's different now. So before we fall into that trap, let's talk a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was a, a city in Greece that was kind of on a uh, peninsula and so there was a lot of commerce coming in. Ships were coming in there, and as a result, they were extremely wealthy. Uh, the, the Roman poet Horace actually wrote a quote that was, that was passed around about the city of Corinth, and it was uh, in you know, the Latin translation of it, basically says, you know, not, everybody get, not everyone can go to Corinth, which basically meant not everybody gets to be rich, so just deal with it. And that was kind of a saying around the city. Not everybody gets to live here. And... and uh, <clears throat> the city of Corinth itself was basically known for two things. They had the Isthmian Games, which is kind of like the Olympics in those days, uh, in that location anyway, uh, where they had uh, really basically MMA fighting. And then they had boxing and they had races and musical performances and that. So they had the Isthmian Games that were the big deal. And then they had the Temple of Aphrodite. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think, you know, when I look at, at American culture or we think about history and look at other cultures, I think when there's an abundance of wealth, you can really see a flourishment of two things, basically. And one is sports and the other is sex. And you see this in Corinth, just like you see this today in our culture, that there's a lot of wealth and this is the way that happens. And so in Corinth, there are some people that estimate actually that the temple of Aphrodite employed a thousand temple prostitutes. And this is the way that people would worship their God as they would go into these prostitutes. And so this was, and this was culturally accepted. And so really, I mean, when you think about it in context, there's not that far of a difference between American culture and what we're kind of dealing with and Corinthian culture and what they were kind of dealing with. And all of these people in Corinth were saved out of that. So when Paul planted his church in Corinth, these people were pagan worshipers and they came to Christ and they left all of that, but they keep falling back into it in the church. And so this letter is kind of a rebuke to help them get away from that. And what he keeps saying in chapter 10 is saying, you guys got to guard your hearts. Because this isn't something where he says, it's not a shadow boxing event where somebody just gets into the ring and they're just kind of throwing punches and then, hey, here's your belt, you're the champion. No, there's actually an opponent throwing punches and if you're not dodging and you're not being proactive, you're going to get pummeled. Because everything depends on this. I mean, our marriages depend on us continuing to fight for purity. Our families, our churches, our integrity, and this all depends on us intentionally, actively fighting for purity. So, I mean, honestly, let's get real. Some of us, it may be that we need to cancel our cable TV subscription because it's just too much of a temptation for the filth that's on there. Or maybe it's our internet subscription. Um, or maybe for you, it's not the sexual immorality side. Maybe it's the idolatry side. And in our day and age, we don't have a temple to a certain God for the most part. We have possessions and status symbols. So maybe you need to cut up the credit cards this year. 
or, or maybe uh, you need to downsize from the car or the house that you've got, you know, or, or you just need to examine your heart because even the things that you do have, even if they're not necessarily luxurious, they've become an idol to you. We aren't just able to sit back and let this stuff happen. This is not an unintentional, haphazard way of life. This is something we have to be proactive in to resist and to flee from temptation. I mean, in the same way that Joseph, when he was faced with Potiphar's wife in the Old Testament, she kept trying to seduce him, and he had to flee, even leaving his coat behind, to get away from it. You know, there's a, there's a pretty interesting story that was published in the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago, and it was basically about a Stanford University study on willpower. This is the first one, maybe it's because I don't read enough reports on studies like this, but this is the first one I've read on actual willpower where they were testing it. But basically, they took a bunch of college students and they gave them a certain amount of data to remember. And then they were testing them, basically saying, well, here's your options for food. And they said the ones that were given more things to remember were more likely to indulge in junk food and that sort of thing than the people that had less to remember. And basically, through their, uh, I'm sure, long process of this, what they determined was that if your brain is tired, that is tied to how much willpower you have. So it's not just a character issue of whether or not you can withstand temptation. It's also a physical tiredness issue, which means that all of us, regardless of whether or not we have impeccable character, in the right circumstances can be susceptible to giving in to temptation. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians is, look, you guys are not as strong as you think you are, so you need to watch out. But... The good news is he doesn't leave us hopeless. It's not just this thing where we're like, well, you know, what can we do? He actually gives us hope. And that is in verse uh, 13 of chapter 10. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. That's the key thing to hang on to. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I tell you what, I love that verse. That's the first verse that as an adult, uh, when I was out of Sunday school and all that, that's the first verse that I had memorized in a Bible study that I was attending. And it's given me so much encouragement and strength over the years because it tells us, basically, we have a two-part defense system against temptation to overcome temptation. We have the side that we've already talked about, which is, you know, we have our responsibility to be proactive and to intentionally flee from temptation to get rid of it. But then it's not just left up to us because God gives us power and he gives us strength that we can overcome temptation. And he says that he's going to be with us, that he is in control. He's not giving us any temptation. We're not enduring anything that is beyond our ability or our own willpower because he knows us each individually. And he gives us not only the strength in it, but he provides the way for us to get out of that temptation. But even though this is extremely important to pursue holiness and purity, and this is something I think really relevant to to our modern day culture, this isn't actually the big reason why we're fighting for righteousness or fighting toward all of this stuff. And that, uh, it leads us to the next point, which is coming up in verse 26. uh, We've already started talking about. So I do not run aimlessly, 
I do not box as one beating the air. So you see, in this verse, Paul is telling us we fight for direction. In verse 24, that kind of gave us the initiation and gave us the the motivation to get up and to start moving that we needed to run. And then verse 25 started telling us, here's how you run the race. And then verse 26 is saying, here's where the race is. And what he's telling us is that there is a place we have to go. I think that a lot of us assume that the Christian life, it really, I mean, it can be boiled down to the fact that there's believers and there's unbelievers. And so as long as you are on this side of the line, we're all good, and we don't have to worry about it anymore because, hey, you know, I'm saved, and so now what? And, and a lot of energy and a lot of, of money, really, in our day is spent trying to convince people that, hey, you just, you don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to push that hard, you know? Uh, they just think, uh, they think that you, you need to get to this plateau, and what we need to understand is that the destination is not a certain stopping point, but the destination in the Christian life is the journey that we have to live in this tension and grow in this tension throughout our Christian life to pursue and fight intentionally for holiness. I think, uh, I mean, you see this in, in, in modern culture, really. You, you've got books, um, you know, like, like Your Best Life Now or, or whatever Oprah's pushing in her book club or Deepak Chopra or all of these kind of guru types that just say, hey, you know what? You can take it easy because you've earned it. I mean, you've worked for a long time and you just need to just relax because it is not a problem. You just, there's no trouble. You can, and, and what they're trying to do is say, you know what? There is a heaven waiting for you, but you don't have to worry about that. I mean, that's not that great. You can do that now. And they're just telling you, stop fighting. And you see this in in advertisements. I mean, we could probably name off a dozen commercials without even trying that tell you you need to have a break or you deserve the new car or something of that sort because that's all that our modern society teaches us over and over and over. It's just pounded into our heads. And so this is really uh, kind of a a major shift for us to think about uh, pursuing and fighting and being intentional in our Christian life. But what Paul is talking about, he is referring to something that Jesus taught his disciples. At the end of Matthew, you don't have to turn here, I'll just read it for you. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 19 and 20, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all always to the end of the age. And so this is something, I mean, it's, it's like another way of saying this, the same message that I'm giving you today. He's saying, you have a place to go, you have a mission to fulfill, and not just you have a place to go, but you have something to do, to teach people, to train them, and so they grow in righteousness. And it's not just on your own power, but Christ is going to be with us wherever we're going on that. Because we're not saved for ourselves. We're not just here so we can come to church and just be comfortable or have a status symbol or, or just to you know, get to this point where it's just for our own pleasure. We are saved to be a part of a community of believers, a global community of believers. And the goal is not for us to just get to a point where we stop, but to get to a point where we're bringing other people in so we can together push forward on this race. And all of this goes back to verse 27. 
But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the fourth thing that we fight for, and this is what I'm going to close with, is we fight for Christ. Because all of these things lead us back to Jesus. This is what we're pushing for. We're running to win because we have a reward waiting for us in Jesus. We are walking in purity. We're growing in holiness because we want to obey Jesus, because we love him. We want to bring others into him, intentionally bring others into to fellowship with Jesus and to faith in Jesus because we want to see Jesus glorified. We don't want to see our families glorified We want to see our families obeying Jesus so that he is glorified through our families. We don't want to see our churches glorified. We want to see people coming to Jesus because our church is following and obeying Jesus. It's not about our church. It's not about our family. It's not about us individually. It's about Jesus, and it's about us pursuing him intentionally. Because this, this is going to be a, a bit of a hard truth for, you guys to, for some of you to hear, but this is really important. And I think this is what it all boils down to, is that if you are not intentionally pursuing Christ, you are actively rejecting him. If you're not intentionally pursuing Christ, you are actively rejecting him. You see this in Scripture. Uh, the Apostle John wrote this in his letter. In 1 John 1, 5-7. In this case, he was writing a letter and people are saying, you know, well, how do we know if somebody's a believer or not a believer? Because we had people in the church and then they left the church. And, I mean, how do we know which ones are true believers? And so what John is writing is, in verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I tell you what, there are very few verses that have absolutely rocked me to the core like this one. And the first time I heard a sermon on this, I was listening to this thing on my, on my iPod as we're on vacation. We're driving across the country, and I'm listening to this thing, and I'm just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I mean, <laughs> this is serious stuff. It's not just a game where we can haphazardly go at it, but I mean, they're, they're for real, Right? I mean, John's telling us, how do we know that we're saved? We're not saved by the things that we're doing. I don't want you to be confused by that. We are saved by the grace of God. God chose us when we couldn't choose for ourselves, and his grace saves us. His Holy Spirit empowers us. So we are justified by his blood and his work on the cross for us, not by the things that we are doing. But when our hearts are transformed and regenerated, when we have placed our faith in Christ, the proof of that salvation is obedience and a growth in holiness and a pursuit of Christ. So I really believe that God is calling us this morning in 2012 to commit to pursuing him. 
that as a church, that as individuals, as a church community and family, that we would push one another on toward holiness because it's not a game. This is serious business that right now, not later today when you can think this through at, at, at uh, lunch or at dinner, but right now we need to commit to fighting toward holiness and pursuing Christ. Because I'll say it again, if we aren't intentionally pursuing Christ, we are actively rejecting him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for giving us grace and mercy. We are so undeserving of it. But Lord, you have poured it out over us. You offer it freely to us. I pray that this morning we would not resist your grace and your mercy, but Lord, that you would just soften our hearts to receive it, to appreciate it. Lord, to experience joy in knowing you. God, I pray that you would encourage us this morning, that we would not fall into a default of of just mediocrity, but Lord, that you would give us a passion Renew our hearts, Lord, to remind us of that that zeal and that fire that we once experienced, that we could seek you again, and Lord, that you would respond to us. I pray you would continue to work in the hearts of each person that's here this morning, and God, that we would be changed and transformed to be more like you right now. We ask this in your name, amen.